Republicans to wake up. Is the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. The Peter B. Collins Show is supported by great listeners across the United States and around the world. My thanks today to C.B. Parrish, Mark Lisgard, and Jane Driscoll. They are voluntary subscribers to support the Peter B. Collins Show, and you can do it too for as little as five bucks a month via PayPal. Just log on to my website at peterbcollins.com. Over on the right-hand side, you click on the link that says you can help. Andy Worthington has become a regular contributor to the Peter B. Collins Show. He is one of the few journalists who has been following in great detail the American Gulag. Most notably, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, which was supposed to be closed months ago, right, President Obama? Andy is the author of the uh, Guantanamo Diaries and, uh, I'm sorry, Guantanamo Files. I misread that. And he joins us from London today. Andy, welcome back to the Peter B. Collins Show. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm well. And I also want to reference your website and encourage people to go there while they listen to this podcast and they can catch up on some of the reportage that you've done. And that is andyworthington.co.uk. And Andy, you have declared this a week of attention to habeas corpus cases. And this is an important area of the law where the Bush administration tried to uh, seal off the rights of prisoners at Guantanamo and elsewhere in our uh, detention centers around the world, uh, the right to appear in court, the right to petition a court uh, to be heard and to demand an account for why they are being held. And so why have you decided to focus on this important issue in the manner that you're doing? Well, you know, actually what happened is that I have been um, studying these cases in in detail um, since um, the prisoners finally managed to get their um, cases in front of a a judge who was able to review the government's supposed evidence. And that first happened 19 months ago. Um, So I've been writing about them ever since, but it occurred to me that there have been a flurry of um, cases recently where um, the the unclassified opinions tend to be released sometime after the judges deliver their actual ruling. And so a stack of these have built up that haven't really been reported on um, in any detail. And the thing is that um, I think every every um, opinion that has been delivered by the judges in these, in these cases is fascinating in one way or another. Um, now there have been 47 rulings to date and 34 of those have gone in favor of the prisoners, so that's 72% success rate 
for the prisoners. Mm -hmm. um, those rulings tend to reveal all kinds of aspects of the um, the uh, the ineptitude and the cruelty, I would say, really, of the regime that has been used to detain them. Um, and the results that have gone against the prisoners, so that's 13 of them, um, have, for the most part, um, not done anything more than demonstrate that these were people who were very tangentially connected, not to al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden or any of the people responsible for the 9-11 attacks or other terrorist attacks, but, um, you know, people connected in a, in a very minor way to the Taliban. Yeah. Um, and what they reveal, I think, which is something that really hasn't been discussed, is that um, although the judges are only empowered to decide whether they're um, involved in some way with al-Qaeda or the Taliban, um, it, it really strikes the heart of the misconception that, at the beginning of the war on terror that equated al-Qaeda with the Taliban. Um, and so we're essentially seeing people... Um, being told by judges that, you know, the government has the right to carry on holding them endlessly at Guantanamo um, as this strange category of human being that's neither a, a soldier or a criminal. Um, whereas really, you know, these guys should clearly have been held as prisoners of war and they're, they're really caught in some darker place that, that, that they genuinely don't deserve. And Andy, I pick up from your narrative that you have quite a bit of respect for these American judges who are wrestling with the difficult legal issues and also the very um, unfriendly political climate, because we see no real heroes of any note on Capitol Hill. Uh, the Senate and the House uh, have essentially failed in their oversight role and they don't want to touch this issue anymore. They, they run away from it as fast as they can. Yeah. And we have the Obama administration, which, uh, while on day two, it articulated its desire to close Guantanamo. There are huge loopholes in that policy. Number one, that they haven't been able to follow up on the president's intention to close Guantanamo. Number two, that while closing Guantanamo is an important step, uh, and while the current president says that America does not torture, we have contradictory evidence coming from Afghanistan right now where a reporter, Anand Gopal, has indicated uh, rather credibly that while there may not be torture going on at Bagram, at the prison at the airbase there near Kabul, that uh, there are now these uh, remote sites where people are being held and report that they have been subjected to torture and not just the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques of the Bush era. So these judges really have been uh, a, a critical um, uh, a source of justice uh, at a time when politically it's not very popular. Well, yeah, absolutely they have. And I mean, actually, if we, if we think back to last May, which was the point at which um, Obama's principles um, were basically abandoned for pragmatism. That was the national security speech when he uh, put everything back on the table and said, listen, we're actually going to bring back military commissions, we're going to hold some people indefinitely. There was a little bit in that speech where, almost apologetically, he spoke about how the courts had ordered the release of, of, of a number of prisoners from Guantanamo. And he, and he actually did speak about those decisions rather dismissively. Um, they were out of his hands. Um, the tone of it was that, you know, this, this is something that, that, we, that we can't deal with, that, that he was almost slightly apologizing for, because he established a task force last year of, 
representatives from various departments and various agencies to look at the cases of all the Guantanamo prisoners. And that's what they've essentially been relying on for, for making their decisions about who to hold, about who to try, and, you know, horribly, um, these many dozens of men who they say they want to hold indefinitely because they don't have the evidence to charge them, but they think they're dangerous. Um, so, you know, even the government has been dismissive of the, the efforts of, of the courts. And, um, you know, and what's really fundamentally very disgraceful about that is that these are men who have been deprived of their uh, liberty for eight years now, for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, these are men who it's very clearly established were never, ever sque- screened adequately uh, on any level um, to determine whether they should have gone to Guantanamo in the first place. We had a statement from Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson just a couple of weeks ago stating that, um, that Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld all knew that they had rounded up large numbers of innocent people in Guantanamo. Um, and so, you know, after all these years, after the, um, after the stonewalling by the Bush administration, after the um, one-sided tribunals that they introduced to review the prisoners' cases, um, really um, as an insulting response to when the Supreme Court tried to give the prisoners, or did give the prisoners habeas corpus rights back in 2004. You know, then took another four years for them to get their habeas corpus rights reaffirmed by the Supreme Court, because Congress intervened and passed two dreadful pieces of legislation that purported to strip them of their habeas rights. Yes. So, you know, when these cases eventually got going in the fall of 2008, and judges started looking at the evidence, it really is, you know, powerful, very powerful that the, the judges were looking objectively for the first time from a position of authority, I have to say. You know, I know that there are many people who, um, who try to attack the judiciary every opportunity that they have, but these are people trained to look objectively at the law. And they looked objectively at what was presented as evidence to them. And it's been deeply shocking. You know, it really has that they have... Um, discovered time and again that, you know, there are um, a small number of um, extremely unreliable witnesses in Guantanamo, people who are either, um, have, either have been subjected to torture or some other form of coercion, who are either being preyed on by interrogators in a state of, um, you know, when they're, when they're clearly mentally ill, or a handful of people who have been bribed, people who have provided information, have been given better living conditions. Um, they saw through it all. They saw that these people were deeply unreliable and that the government had been trying to suppress its own evidence that these people were unreliable. You know, and that's one of the big things that's come out of it, is, is confirmation of what myself and other researchers have uh, established through looking at the government's own records over many years, that it was untrustworthy, that everything that purported to be evidence had been developed after the fact and had been developed and had been extracted in circumstances that were absolutely not conducive to getting anywhere near the truth. Um, so, you know, it's been extraordinary. And one day, I'm sure, you know, it will be remembered in the history books that, um, that, that the major, a major part that was played in exposing the hollowness of the, uh, of the Bush administration's claims that it was holding the worst of the worst will be these, these decisions, these rulings by the um, habeas judges. And, Andy, uh, on that very point, uh, Wilkerson was the number two to Colin Powell. He was present at many of these top-level meetings during the president's first term, Bush's first term, because Powell left the secretary of state position uh, uh, during the transition to the second presidential term. 
So Wilkerson's information uh, places this knowledge of innocence uh, well back into 2003 or 2004 at the latest. Now, this suggests a pattern of deception on the part of the administration and its prosecutors that under American law would require any uh, convictions or other uh, court judgments to be thrown out because the prosecutor has an affirmative obligation to bring forward exculpatory information. And so uh, given the top level members of the administration were aware that this evidence existed and did nothing uh, to bring it to the attention of the Supreme Court, of these uh, kangaroo court uh, uh, military tribunals, or to the appeals uh, that are continuing to be processed right now under habeas corpus, this is a huge and intentional miscarriage of justice. Well, I suppose it is in a way. I mean, I think what I think what you know what Lawrence Wilkinson exposed to a large extent was um, was that they, you know, the problem is that they didn't know who they had for the most part. Um, so it wasn't specifically that they that they you know that they had very genuinely um, hidden evidence that demonstrated that people were innocent. Um, you know, so it's slightly more complicated in that sense. Mm. Although you know there have been some pretty um, stunning revelations over the years about about the extent to which they were told. Um, you know, you sh- you really need to be looking very closely at what's going on at Guantanamo and trying to get people out of there because such colossal mistakes have been made. I mean, I think a big one for me was the um, revelation that a, that one of the only Arabic experts in the CIA had travelled to Guantanamo in in the summer of 2002. So, you know, within six months of the prison opening and mm-hmm. selected a random group of prisoners to interview and, and, and was reeling in shock at the, his discovery that, you know, that um, so many of them were, were clearly um, people who had been swept up, you know, on, a, on essentially a random basis. And, you know, and it, it was in later years that we managed to piece together the rest of the jigsaw puzzle to establish that this was no surprise because bounty payments were being offered because unlike what the administration said, um, most of the people weren't captured by Americans on the battlefield but were sold to them or handed over to them by their Afghan and Pakistani allies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but when, um, when, when um, some senior figures tried to take this information to Gonzalez, Alberto Gonzalez, who at the time was White House counsel, um, they found that actually David Addington um, was standing in their way um, and... Um, when they tried to present this information, then Addington, who was Cheney's senior lawyer, um, just said, I'm not interested in hearing about whether this is accurate or not. The president has determined that on capture, all these prisoners were and are enemy combatants. End of story. There will be no review. Um, and, you know, the reason they did this is that, is that the individual guilt or innocence of the people was secondary to the experiment in which they were going to exploit these people for their intelligence and, that, um, and their feeling, which Wilkerson has explained as well, that, um, that everybody might have just a small bit of information that would add to a bigger picture that would enable them to understand all about al-Qaeda, all about the structure of things in Afghanistan. I think potentially, you know, the entire structure of all terrorists um, in the, who happen to be Muslims 
anywhere in the world, and that that was their, you know, long plan. They didn't care how long it took. They certainly had no intention of um, having it interfered with in any way um, by having people come along and say, you know, you may have made mistakes here. I mean, it's where the 1% doctrine, the, the Cheney's theory comes from, that if one out of 100 people were useful, then he didn't care about the other 99. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have to say, without the intervention of, of the Supreme Court, um, you know, in 2004, which first broke the spell, to be honest. I mean, it did. It allowed yeah. lawyers into Guantanamo. It broke the point of this prison of isolation where people, where they could do what they wanted. Um, who's to say that it really, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't have, have um, expanded and, and become, um, you know, this infinitely colossal project? I mean, we already know between, somewhere between 60 and 80,000 people were held at one time or another, um, in U.S. prisons as a result of the war on terror. It just seems to me it was, it was actually um, a plan for, for something with infinite possibilities. And, um, you know, thankfully that didn't happen. But mm -hmm. it was horribly all-encompassing, open-ended, and completely beyond the reach of the law. Yeah. Now, Andy, as we speak here on the 20th of April, what is the current population at Guantanamo? There are 183 men still in Guantanamo. 183. Okay. And how many of those are Yemenis? Um, over half of them. Somewhere okay. around 95 are Yemenis. Okay. Now, uh, tell us, uh, I want you to take a couple of minutes here. Uh, I have the story up on my screen here about uh, the case of the Yemeni Mukhtar al-Warafi. And his habeas corpus uh, case has been heard in the district court in Washington by Chief Judge Royce Lamberth. Why don't you uh, walk us through this story and what the critical issues are that our listeners should know about? Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, this is one of the um, Yemenis who has um, lost his habeas corpus petition. There are a handful of them, and, and you know... As an introduction, you know, I should say that there are so many Yemenis in Guantanamo still, um, not really because anybody um, um, who, who holds the reins of power very actively wants to hold them. Mm -hmm. um, President Bush um, had attempted to um, find a way to return dozens of the Yemenis to Yemen, but there was always a stumbling block, which was essentially that the U.S. government didn't trust that the Yemenis would put enough security processes in place to guarantee that, um, that you know, that these people would be monitored at least. Mm -hmm. um, now, to me, there's always been a problem that if you clear people, um, then, you know, the point has to come where you say, well, you know, they've been through a process, whether a review board under, under the Bush administration or the task force under Obama, where you clear somebody for release, um, and yet with Guantanamo, it seems that that never quite removes the taint of, uh, oh, they might be dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, so it makes it very difficult. And, and what's happened with the Yemenis is that, um, is that the Obama administration got cold feet after we had this guy who tried to blow up a plane at Christmas who had apparently trained in Yemen. Abdul Muttalib, um, uh-huh. And so he's not returning anybody there for the foreseeable future um, even though these are men who are cleared, even though these are men who have been held for eight years, even though what the hell are they supposed to have to do with anything that may or may not be going on in Yemen? So mm -hmm. I think that's a pretty 
depressing introduction to the stories of these men because even if they win their habeas petitions, they're clearly not going anywhere. Um, but in the case of Mukhtar Warafi, which you just asked me about, who is uh, one of the recent habeas uh, rulings that was made, um, now this was a man who, who um, had read a fatwa in Yemen that told him to go out and help the Taliban. So he went out to Afghanistan, and basically pretty much as soon as he'd got there, um, having made his way to the front line, um, and hung about there for a couple of weeks, you know, um, holding a gun at some point, but not firing it at anybody. Um, this, that's the extent of his supposed militant activity. This well, and all. it's important to note that his connection was with the Taliban, right, and not with al-Qaeda? Oh, absolutely, yes, yes. Um, but, you know, but at that point, what happened was that, that he was, you know, they were asking for people to work as medics. Now, his brother had a clinic in Yemen, and he'd done some training there. So he got involved as a medic. So that was it. From then on, he was, um, he was working in a clinic. He worked in another clinic. He worked in a hospital. Um, then the Taliban fell in northern Afghanistan. He surrendered. Um, he ended up surviving a horrible massacre in a, in a fortress um, owned by, by one of the U.S. allies in northern Afghanistan, and he ends up in Guantanamo. So and the, finally, the, you, just, just a couple of details. The ally you're referring to is Dostum, General Dostum. Yes. And the facility is the place where many Americans will remember that John Walker Lind was uh, held, and it was this uh, basement prison that flooded. Um, and so, so people might recall uh, that episode and Al-Warafi was uh, rolled up at the same basic time. That's right, and he, like Lind, was one of the, <clears throat> was one of the lucky ones who survived you know, this massacre where the prisoners had been rounded up. Um, they, they, some of them had managed to keep their weapons and then, and then uh, tried to fight back against their captors. And then, right, and a CIA officer was killed, and that was part right. of the case against Lind. And then the, um, you know, then and then this um, revolt was savagely put down over the course of a week um, in bombing raids in in uh, the Northern Alliance fighters, supported by U.S. and U.K. special forces. Uh, you know, a significant number, hundreds of the people who had been held there were killed. Um, so John Walker Lind and this guy Mukhtar Warafi, um, and and somewhere around eight, 80 or 90 others survived in the basement for a week, and they were bombed down there, they were fired upon, and eventually they were flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes through all that um, and eventually ends up in Guantanamo. Now, the judge um, looked at his case, and and basically, given that the rules stipulate that he has to... That the gov- if the government demonstrates that this man... Um, is connected to um, al-Qaeda or the Taliban in, um, in any meaningful way. In, in other words, if they were part of the Taliban or al-Qaeda or associated forces, then they can be held. Um, so that's it. That's the end of the story for this man, is that um, he gets held. Now, the problem is that, is that anybody who's familiar with the Geneva Conventions would say, well, what about the first Geneva Convention? Um, because that is supposed to ensure that medics uh, qualify as non-detainable um, people mm-hmm. um, and that anybody engaged in the treatment of the wounded or the sick um, shouldn't be held. Um, but the problem is that this has rather cynically, um, I think very cynically, um, in the Military Commissions Act of 2006, um, Congress had approved a passage in there which specifically stated 
No person may invoke the Geneva Conventions in any habeas corpus proceeding as a source of rights in any court of the United States. That's it. Bang. Out goes the um, protections for uh, medical personnel. Um, in comes the, uh, the, uh, the absolute necessity for the, for the chief judge to, to rule that this man could con- can continue to be held indefinitely at Guantanamo um, as somebody who was formerly known as an enemy combatant now I think is called an unprivileged enemy belligerent by the Obama administration. But essentially, you know, is this man not um, a medic who was supporting armed forces so that in a logical, real, and fair world, um, those armed forces that he was supporting would be held as prisoners of war protected by the Geneva Conventions, and he wouldn't be held because he was a medic protected by the first Geneva Convention. But no. Essentially, you know, the way this story would be promoted in the right-wing press, if they were remotely interested, would be, hey, a judge just decided that another terrorist can be held in Guantanamo. Right. And Andy, there's, uh, in your story, you go into some detail here that um, the Supreme Court decision, Boumediene versus Bush, which uh, overturned parts of the Military Commissions Act, failed to remove a section here that Judge Lamberth uh, invoked uh, in denying a habeas petition by, um, by this man from Yemen. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So explain that a little bit, please. Well, I think that's essentially what, what I was saying, was it's the, it's the um, suppression of, of um, the right of a medic not to be not to be detained. Uh-huh. But, I mean, that, that was the section that was in the Military Commissions Act that is still in the Military Commissions Act, um, you know, which, which means that any medic who comes up before a, a habeas mm-hmm. court, um, if it can be demonstrated that they were working for the Taliban, um, they're going to lose their habeas petition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I did mention in my article that I think that there's, there's something very ironic about this um, when we contrast um, what he was involved in as a medic in, in wartime, essentially, um, with the fact that U.S. medical personnel have been, in, have been deeply involved in all kinds of aspects of the torture program that was implemented by the Bush administration, and yet nobody seems to want to hold them accountable at all. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point, and uh, it's contradictory more than ironic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, so... This is is this an appealable decision? Uh, yes, it is. So Lambert uh, writes this ruling, and it can go to the Supreme Court. So there could be another uh, review of the Military Commissions Act, and in turn, the status of detainees who have applied for but been denied habeas corpus protection. Well, I think it, I think the bigger picture here really is that I mean, you know, although it's um, although there seems to me something particularly extraordinary about authorizing. Uh, by sleight of hand, the detention of a medic. Um, you know, we, we've run up against this problem in many of the other cases of the prisoners who've lost. I mean, you know, 15 months ago, there was a Yemeni who served as a cook for Arab forces who were supporting the Taliban um, before 9-11, before the U.S.-led invasion of Afghanistan in October 2001. And essentially, you know, what would have to have happened is that this man would have had to have teleported himself out of the country 
um, the moment that the U.S.-led invasion began, because suddenly he became an enemy of the United States. You know, but he was a cook. Um, you know, I mean, the judge in that case, you know, uh, stressed how important cooks are to armed forces and, and quoted Napoleon saying an army marches on its stomach. Well, it's like, okay, um, but, you know, we've had other examples of men who didn't raise arms against, against U.S. forces at all, who are regarded as being justifiably detained. So it's why, really, my bottom line on this is um, something is deeply wrong with the um, original authorization for holding these men, which is the authorization for use of military force, which Congress passed the week after the 9-11 attacks. And the specific detention rights were actually um, acknowledged by the Supreme Court um, in a decision in, in 2004 called Hamdi v. Rumsfeld. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the package. That, um, that the judges are, are kind of stuck with, um, and I, ju and, you know, I, I simply think that it's it's wrong, um, but that nobody's talking about it at the moment. And obviously, this is going to roll on for months. Maybe this is going to roll on for years, Peter. I don't know until all the habeas corpus cases have been decided. And what we're going to end up then with is whatever it is, dozens and dozens of men still held in Guantanamo, or maybe they'll have been moved elsewhere by that point. Um, and maybe at that point we can finally say, you know, what, what exactly, um, why are we holding these guys who never demonstrated that they were even dangerous to us? Mm -hmm. Which is what the judge said in Al-Warafi's case. I mean, he was the second judge to say, um, I deliver this ruling because I have to do, but I do have to say um, that I'm not convinced that it's more likely than not that he's actually a threat to the security of the United States. And he specifically asked the government to look at his case. You know, essentially, after the ruling, he was saying, I've done what I have to do. I would like you to go away and uh, talk amongst yourselves and see if you can find a valid reason to continue holding this man, because he doesn't seem to constitute a threat. So what is this about? Well, and uh, do, do you feel that in expressing that, Judge Lamperth is... Um straining at the end of his proverbial judicial leash that, that he recognizes the limits of his role and uh, he has to interpret the law as the Supreme Court uh, has done so and that, that he's chafing at this and, and you know, trying to find some other means to bring justice to al-Warafi? Yeah, I mean, I think he's definitely pointing out, look, I've done what I was required to do here. This is the law as it stands. Um, but you really ought to be able to go away, you guys, and have a look at it and realize that um, that after eight years of all this, there's no reason to be detaining people um, like this man at all. Um, you know, what's interesting to me is that we're not able to have the discussion that we should have been having all along, because if this had all been done correctly, what we would have had would have been, you know, a bunch of genuine terror suspects who, would, who were um, taken to the states and put into the federal court system to be tried, as had happened successfully before 9-11, and actually has happened throughout the Bush administration, but they never wanted to talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, and that everybody else would have been held and protected as prisoners of war by the Geneva Conventions in a prisoner of war camp somewhere, and they would still be there. Now, the problem is, these guys were never screened on capture to determine whether they were prisoners of war. Um, so that was that was a crucial thing that was missed out deliberately by the administration when they were first seized. 
Um, but had they gone through some kind of um, vetting process, and there is Article 5 Geneva Conventions, uh, competent tribunals where you're supposed to screen people who aren't wearing uniforms to work out uh, whether you've got a soldier or whether you've got a passerby. Um, and it never happened, very deliberately. Um, but they would be prisoners of war, they wouldn't have been abused, and they can be held until the end of hostilities. And we would now be involved in the discussion of, is it really legitimate to have a war on terror, or whatever it's called now, um, that goes on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that would be an interesting discussion, because I, clearly I think the answer is no, but we may not be um, at the end of of that. I mean, is it, is it when the United States finally withdraws from Afghanistan in a decade or whenever? Maybe yeah, it is. Right. No, we I, should have been having that discussion. Well, Not and, and, what we've got is, is courts attempting to ascertain um, who these largely randomly seized and overwhelmingly brutalized people are mm-hmm. who are finally making their way to their courtrooms eight years after the event. And they're having to look at them and decide, are you a terror suspect or are you somebody um, connected to the military activities in Afghanistan eight years ago? And if you're either of those, I have to sling you back in the hole. There's one set of issues here around the concept of an endless war. Uh, But there's a second set of issues that are linked to the endless war uh, that relate to, for example, the, the right or lack thereof to freedom of those who are detained on an unlimited basis without charge uh, linked to the endless war. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, 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 there are these layers of issues, and you can see from the point of view of the uh, uh, defendant here that it's almost insurmountable and uh, certainly well beyond uh, his control or the control of attorneys who may be working for him. Andy, you referenced uh, at the outset that 72% of the habeas cases have been successful uh, for the prisoner. And I'm looking at your list of results here uh, under the heading 47 Guantanamo habeas corpus results. And the first group is the Uyghurs. Uh, We've talked about them on previous occasions. Um, And uh, there also is, uh, as you earlier referenced, a large group of uh, Yemenis. Um, what are the other clusters, if you can summarize for our listeners, starting with those who have been successful in winning release via the habeas corpus process? Whether there are any um, any, any um, strands that I could draw out of that that that, that, um, that, that identify groups, I'm, I'm not sure that I can actually. Okay. I mean, there are the Uyghurs that we've spoken about. There are there are 17 of those guys. Well, I'm looking now at the uh, November 2008, uh, a group of Bosnian Algerians. Uh, sure. Who... Yeah, well, these were, the, these were guys who were um, seized um, on the rather hysterical demand of the United States in October 2001. So very early on in the war on terror, they'd been tipped off somehow that here was a sale of people in, in, in Bosnia, Algerians who had settled there during the, during the Civil War and had for the most part, married local women and were working in charities, um, that there was a plot to blow up the U.S. embassy. Now, the Bosnian government was um, was not really taken in by this, but the threats were apparently enormous, and so they had to investigate it. They imprisoned the men for three months. They investigated them thoroughly. They found nothing. Um, but, but on the evening in January 2002, when they were going to be released, um, 
U.S. forces essentially kidnapped them and took them straight to Guantanamo, hmm. which is where they were held until Judge Richard Leon, an appointee of George W. Bush, who, who um, actually made a lot of these early rulings, um, dismissed the cases against um, five of them, um, but said that the sixth man um, had apparently been involved in trying to recruit people to go to Afghanistan. Now, there's an appeal ongoing in that case, um, and I'm not sure how that's going to end up. I mean, what's interesting is that his contact in Afghanistan that he was supposed to be trying to recruit people for was Abu Zubaydah. And Abu Zubaydah is one of the high-value detainees whose story, um, the more that comes out of it, the more shocking it is. Mm-hmm. He was initially touted as the number two or the number three in al-Qaeda, and he was actually a mentally ill gatekeeper for a training camp that had nothing to do with al-Qaeda at all. Um, he and his confessions, because he was the number two waterboarding champion after Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and was waterboarded at least 83 times, um, the torture program was invented for him. He was a guinea pig. It was tested out, really, on him. Um, there are false leads generated as a result of his tortured confessions that are popping up all over Europe, in Canada. Um, you know, it's going to take a long time to unravel these, but it seems very possible to me that this remaining Algerian from Bosnia in Guantanamo was um, also caught up in, um, in, in a plot that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I say, his case is being appealed. Now, Andy, as I'm scrolling through these, uh, I'm thinking of the the timeline and the transition to the Obama administration. And I just wanted to ask if, uh, as you've read these court decisions, if you've seen any any shift either on the part of prosecutors who argued against the habeas corpus uh, demand and on the part of judges. And I'm thinking of the panel here at the Ninth Circuit in San Francisco that was aghast that uh, in uh, the uh, the case of uh, um, oh uh, he's he's the British guy who uh, Binyam Muhammad Binyam Muhammad thank you yes uh, in the Binyam Muhammad case where they were quizzing these attorneys from the Justice Department saying well that's what you said when Bush was president uh, are you sure you're still supposed to say that now yeah. and and I'm curious if you came up with any uh, additional byplay like that in uh, this range of habeas corpus cases? Yeah, well, I have to say, you know, very bluntly, um, uh, although I um, have um, some respect for Attorney General Eric Holder for trying to push for civilian trials for the um, the supposed um, co-conspirators in, in the 9-11 attacks and saying history will judge us by this um, and trying to stand by the, the principle that um, any other kind of trial in a military commission um, will not have the approval of the world um, and that it's necessary. Although I approve of that, I have to say that as the man who oversees the whole of the Justice Department, he has done absolutely nothing to change the way that the habeas cases have been approached by the Justice Department lawyers from when Bush was in power to now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that the lawyers were pretty much for the prisoners, the, the attorneys for the prisoners would pretty much tell you that that's how it is. Um, that what was in place when Bush was in power was every attempt possible to obstruct discovery, so, you know, the production of uh, documents to the defense teams, exculpatory material, um, that it hasn't changed, that the Justice 
department attorneys who are the same people um, are still dragging their heels, doing everything that they can um, to prevent the defense teams from having access to the material that they need. And moreover, then, you know, this is what gets me, really, is that nobody, nobody is exercising any oversight. So, you know, some of these stories are so shocking that you, that you would think anybody with any sense would have said, you know, in a higher position would have said, can I just review that before you send it to the court? Um, and would have said, you know, this case just doesn't have any legs. This is ridiculous. We're going to get left out of court. Um, and they haven't. These are deeply serious matters. So what has actually happened is that every few months the, the um, judges have, have severely criticized the Justice Department for, e for even daring to prolong somebody's agony in Guantanamo and bringing a ridiculous case in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, and I, all I can think, and I have thought about this quite a lot, why this is happening is that, um, is that actually... The motivation of the Obama administration is not to um, deal with the, the habeas side of things, but is its own review. This task force that was established to review the cases, which it always seemed ironic to me, um, you know, was conducted secretly. No, no results have been made public. Struck me very much as the kind of behavior that we expected from the Bush administration, some mm -hmm. kind of executive process. <laughs> Yeah. Um, this is what they, they're more interested in this than they are in what the judges are doing with their much longer and um, more impartial and objective involvement in these cases, which, of course, has been rumbling on since 2002 when the prison opened. Now, if I have it um, right, the task force you referred to was led by former White House counsel Greg Craig. He resigned toward the end of uh, 2009. And uh, we're hearing some unattributed, but uh, things that likely came from Craig, that it's Rahm Emanuel, uh, the White House chief of staff, who appears to be dictating uh, both to the task force and to the Justice Department uh, what is uh, permissible in the Obama era and what is not. Have you picked up any, any additional indicators that it's Emanuel who really is uh, uh, dictating these issues? Well, I, you know, I'm always looking for more information on this story because I think that it's huge, you know. Um, and I think Greg Craig was driven out essentially because his principal stand was one that fell out of favor with, um, with the party that was desperate to, um, to maintain a working relationship with Republicans that was keeping an eye on how the polls were going. And every indication is that, yes, indeed, this has been Rahm Emanuel. And I did see today that um, Greg Craig had spoken recently somewhere and had the analogy that was used was that there were two giant planes and one of them was um, the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and dealing with those. Um, and another was, um, was health care reform. And that Guantanamo was essentially like sending up a flock of geese which might cause one of these two gigantic planes to crash. Hmm. Um, and essentially that was... That was described as Emmanuel's point of view. Therefore, it's irrelevant. Um, now, you know, that, that may have made some kind of political sense at certain times. Um, I think that, it, it, that it, the way that it's most easily perceived um, is that it's just involved a lack of principles, um, a, um, a kind of extreme willingness to compromise, to back down on things that were really too important to back down on 
things that Greg Craig, by you know, by insisting on setting a deadline for closing Guantanamo, um, by insisting on releasing the um, OLC's torture memos last spring, by trying to bring some of the cleared Uyghurs to live in the United States, he'd been really, I think, pushing back very clearly and in a very principled manner against what the Bush administration has, did, has had done. Um, and I think that for Emmanuel to um, essentially win um, hasn't left the administration in a stronger position because every time they back down to Republican pressure, they make it easier for the Republicans to put even more pressure on them. Yeah, it's just amazing. And also, uh, you mentioned the OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. Uh, nominee Don Johnson, uh, her nomination was withdrawn uh, during the Easter recess here in the U.S. And it, it really leaves me uh, aghast and, and fuming because uh, at the same very break, Obama used his power to make what are called recess appointments, uh, appointments that uh, go around the need for Senate approval and allow the person to serve in that term until the end of the next Senate term. And he declined to uh, apply the uh, uh, recess appointment to Don Johnson. And furthermore, this is a victory for the forces of Dick and Liz Cheney, because Liz Cheney and her group launched a TV commercial, and I've never been able to prove that it actually ran as a commercial. They just released it to the cable news channels who played it for free. Uh, but this ominously talked about the Al-Qaeda 8 uh, attorneys who'd been appointed to jobs in the Justice Department who had represented uh, detainees or their interests uh, during the Bush era. And this kind of, uh, of propaganda and uh, this, this kind of an effort uh, to use unethical means to slime people and to prevent uh, the law from running its course, uh, to prevent uh, people from serving in a legitimate capacity to defend even uh, a real terrorist, much less the uh, the innocent people who were at, at Guantanamo. Uh, this is, is another major assault on our criminal justice system. Well, absolutely it is, yeah. And I think... Um... You know, I think um, it seems to me that, um, you know, was this nomination uh, withdrawn simply because, you know, this is a woman who had um, too many principles, too many points of view that she wasn't prepared to sacrifice for um, whatever is regarded as the political necessity and, and, you know, this great desire for compromise. You know, and it does seem to me, above all, that if Rahm Emanuel is supposed to be the man who is driving um, a successful um, policy for, for Barack Obama, then he's failed. Um, you know, uh, but I mean, it's only because from where I'm standing, and I'm sure it's from where you're standing as well, Peter, and, and most of the people that I talk to who are looking on this with something close to despair, um, this isn't winning. This is alienating um, the voter base. Yeah. Um, the constant desire to... Compromise. I mean, which, you know, in, in terms of terrorism is most clearly seen in debating whether or not to, um, you know, to make Eric Holder look a fool by withdrawing this idea of trying the 9-11 co-conspirators in a federal court. Mm -hmm. um, this, this constant desire to, um, to, to step back and appease Republicans, which may have had a practical point up until the, the health care issue was resolved, but seems to be ongoing, 
seems to be a, a general state of affairs. Well, Andy, um, you, you're... I think, that, I think that Emmanuel is not doing his job. I think somebody else is needed. Well, I, I agree, and I'll just take a tangent off of your uh, focus point. But we've seen in recent weeks <clears throat> the Obama administration uh, give what they think are gifts to Republicans in order to win support in the future. So offshore drilling bans that uh, we fought for and held on to for over 30 years have just been given away in in a moment. Uh, and Obama is embracing not only resumption of the construction of nuclear power plants, but federal loan guarantees, so we are on the hook for the cost overruns. Right. And, and these, again, are e- efforts where they've negotiated with themselves. There's no deal with Mitch McConnell or any Republican that in exchange for these cave-ins that, that we get something like the global warming legislation or uh, uh, you know a promise not to filibuster a Supreme Court appointee. There, there's no dealing going on here. It's just giveaways, yeah. and and I find it extremely frustrating, and I can't find the political payoff for it. No, I can't either. I mean, I'm, I'm presuming the way they're thinking is, you know, uh, we're proceeding with all the things as we need to do. Um, it's okay. Things may look like they dip a bit, but, 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 you know, when the elections come around, it will all be okay. I mean, I honestly don't think that it looks that way. Um, you know, at uh, the moment, it's only the lack of a credible leader of the Republican Party that, that, you know, that makes me hopeful that all is not lost. But it really just does seem that the crux of the problem is not having enough people who are prepared to stand up and defend values and shout down their opponents when that's required. And it seemed to me very much that Greg Craig was somebody who was trying to do that on, on issues to do with Guantanamo and terrorism and national security. You know, those issues where the Democrats always feel weak in the face of allegations by the Republicans, that that's exactly what they are. They're weak on these issues. Um, yeah, I think John Brennan has, has played that role a little bit um, in, in, on some of the occasions when he's defended the administration. But there isn't somebody in a really key position who can do this? Because I don't expect it to be Barack Obama. You know, it's not his style. Is not um, is not to stand up and bark back when a bunch of right wing dogs stand up and bark at him. He's not the person to do it. But his administration lacks people who can fight the Republicans in the terms that they understand. Um, and that's what I think is missing. And that's that's essentially, you know, is the problem. Mm-hmm. Andy, I wanted to ask you one final question here. Um, Scott Horton, the Columbia Law professor who also writes for Harper's Magazine, had the cover story on the March issue, and uh, I interviewed him back in late January about this very important and well-sourced story that he reported, and that is uh, the case of uh, three prisoners at Guantanamo who were spirited out of Camp Delta Uh, on a night uh, in June of 2006, and they were sent to uh, what is called Camp No, which is a black site on the Guantanamo property, but outside of the main encampment there. And they came back dead. And the official story was that they had killed themselves in an act of asymmetrical terrorism uh, by stuffing uh, cloths down their throats and then hanging themselves. A very far-fetched scenario to begin with. And Horton, with uh, eyewitnesses who were in the guard towers and also uh, in the block, uh, was able to take this story apart. 
And uh, I talked to, I did a follow-up and talked to Mr. Horton, and only Keith Olbermann on MSNBC uh, interviewed him when the story first broke. But I do understand it's gotten much more currency in other parts of the world. Um, is there more of an uproar about these uh, homicides, I would call them murders, uh, at the hands of American uh, interrogators, captors, uh, in other parts of the world than the dead silence that we're hearing about it in the U.S.? Well, I think what happened was that it was, um, it was at least noticed in the, um, you know, in the ebb and flow of news stories. It was reported for a few days around the world, and then, of course, like just about everything, um, it disappeared again. Um, what was noticeable, of course, in the States was a pretty resounding silence. Uh, as you say, only Keith Alberman um, uh, presented anything uh, about it on um, on broadcast TV. Um, and if I recall correctly, um, the the only things that were run on it by the Times and the Post were, the, were an associated press piece. So they didn't investigate the story themselves. I think you're correct, yeah. And and from what I understand, I mean, you know, this story has hit a brick wall. Um, I've spoken to Staff Sergeant Joe Hickman, who is the just one of many soldiers, but was the one who who had the most um, to reveal about the story. He was the guard tower um, guy, right? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, in charge of many men. I mean, a, a, a man in a position of um, of responsibility at Guantanamo, a man with a long military history that he had no reason to throw away by um, coming up with false stories. Um, and he, I know, was trying to interest other broadcasters in the story, but, you know, it hasn't happened. Um, so, you know, as, as far as the official story goes, the Justice Department held its own, um, essentially, abortive investigation into it and, and closed that down and closed down the story. Isn't that remarkable? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it was, uh, partly I think it was such a big story that nobody could handle it. Um, and because it, because it didn't have um, the kind of documentary evidence that Abu Ghraib had, for example, which was mm-hmm. the only thing that made Abu Ghraib so extraordinary was the photos. Um, because it was a story that was so deeply shocking, but there wasn't any actual tangible evidence. Um, people preferred not to look at it. I mean, and I really do think that that's the case. I think it's such a big and horrific story. And it may be that, um, that you know, that, that these weren't murders, that there is some other explanation. But it's certainly true that what has passed for investigations um, is so flawed, um, is so missing in evidence, um, has presented implausible um, situations of something that happened that, that you know some new inquiry would need to be undertaken um, to at least clear the air. But of course, you know the lid has been put on it firmly by the Justice Department, which doesn't want to proceed, and that's supposed to be the end of it. Move along, nothing to see here. Um, we said it was suicide, so that's what it is. Yeah. And Andy, one of those men who died uh, was a Saudi whose father is a retired uh, general in the military or, or state police there in Saudi Arabia, who did his own autopsy and investigation, uh, at least to the extent that he could. And one of the things that he reported to Scott Horton is that there were needle marks on his son's arms when the cadaver arrived uh, in Saudi Arabia. And I wanted to ask you about that because uh, <clears throat> recently I did the two interviews with an American author named uh, uh, Hank Alberelli. His, uh, his signature is H.P. Alberelli, Jr. 
And he's published a lengthy book that uh, is fascinating in its rich detail called A Terrible Mistake. And it's focused on MKUltra and the other uh, covert CIA programs of the early Cold War. We're going back to the 1950s where LSD was used. There were experiments with other drugs uh, as, a, as truth serums, as crazy drugs to disable and um, immobilize people. And, and I just wanted to get your thought because... Al Borelli shows that this occurred uh, starting in roughly 1950, and uh, they report to us that it ended in the early 1960s. This work was then exposed by the Church Commission, the Rockefeller Commission, and other investigations here in the United States. And we're led to believe that that was the end of it, that uh, our CIA and other intelligence agencies no longer used torture, targeted assassinations, or the application of drugs, um, uh, either uh, wittingly or unwittingly, on the recipient. And I just wanted to get your thought about the, uh, the arc of these issues, because it's led me to reevaluate my own sense that there was a time in the 1980s and 90s where our intelligence community was operating more or less uh, within our laws and moral standards. Uh, do you have any comment on that, just given your research uh, in depth into the torture practices and uh, detention practices at Guantanamo? Well, I would say that um, that, that, that sounds accurate to me. Um, but I know people who are doing research into this who may, um, who may have some, some other issues with, with this feeling that I think we both share, that between those kind of scandals, um, in the 70s, that, that, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, um, this, um, how shall I put it, this kind of um, uh, interest in, in experimentation on human beings um, went away. Um, I would certainly say that what happened after 9-11 was that the people who were advocating for that, and we know that the that um, you know that this was driven by senior figures in the Bush administration, but that they were drawing on um, on um, medical personnel, psych- psychiatrists, and psychologists. They were drawing on. Um, they were having a lot of policy essentially driven willingly by um, people who had worked in the SEER program, the Survival Evasion Resistance Escape mm-hmm. program that the military uses to train personnel to resist torture if captured. Um, and I think that the, I think that what we're going to be seeing more of as time goes on is um, is more very deeply disturbing evidence that that um, experimentation was part of the detention policies after nine yeah. eleven. And I would be surprised if um, you know if these people came out of nowhere. I would be surprised if we don't see some continuity. Um, running back all, all, all through uh, back to the period that you're talking about, and people who I'm not saying there were people who were involved 50 years ago who were involved now, but a continuity of um, the mentality um, required to um, to to take uh, uh, this horrible fascination in in human experimentation. Essentially, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, you know, what they were doing in the in the war on terror was was finding ways in which they could mentally destroy human beings. Indeed, and uh, the the other piece that I would add is that whether or not there was a break uh, in these nefarious activities during the 1980s in particular, we know that at that time we were exporting 
this knowledge and these practices through the School of the Americas, uh, particularly to dictatorships in Central and South America. And so even if we were not actively uh, involved in those pursuits at that time, we were certainly enabling others to follow in those ugly footsteps. Well, absolutely, yes. Um, you know, and that is, um, of course, a particularly, um, particularly depressing story. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'll be interested in what more comes out about, what, you know, was this, was this program in terms of what the United States was doing totally asleep uh, during these decades, or, or was something going on in the background that then um, emerged after 9-11? But I have, I have no doubt that the continuity of that kind of mentality um, is evident in, in what happened after 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, and I really do think you know, it, it's, it's probably what we're going to see over the months and years to come is, gonna, is, is probably going to be even darker than we thought about what they were up to. I'm afraid you're right. Andy Worthington, great to talk with you again. Thanks for the work that you continue to do. Uh, you put American journalists to shame by the uh, dedication that you show to this important set of issues. Your book, The Guantanamo Files, is still available. People can find it at Amazon. And your powerful website, andyworthington.co.uk. Andy, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure, as always. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Your feedback is welcome. Email me, peter, at peterbcollins.com. Happy trails. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails.